On November 13th, 1982, the world kind of paused and uh, paid tribute to uh, the memory of fallen soldiers and nurses who gave their lives during the Vietnam War. On that day, the wall, so it's nicknamed, was dedicated in Washington, D.C. You can go online and look at the pictures. It's a, if you haven't been there, uh, it's a wall of black granite standing 10 feet tall, narrow, but stretching more than two football fields long, black granite panels carved by computer. Into those panels are the names of these heroes gone by. Nothing, nothing more is said, just row after row of name after name. When the monument was dedicated at first, from what I've read, there was an outcry of public disapproval. There should be famous quotes, people said, embedded somewhere in those panels. There, there should be panels of famous speeches, maybe carvings or etchings, tributes to the deceased, you know, something more, something more. But over time, it's interesting, the profound message just kind of sunk in. Anything said would be insufficient. 58,272 names silently bear witness to the ultimate sacrifice of life and death, and nothing more needs to be said. It was enough. On the same month, that is November, if I take you back 119 years earlier, the nation grieved the losses from another war, this one a civil war, out on a field where a battle had taken place not too long ago before this event, and by the way, the lives of about the same number of soldiers, 51,000 died. Abraham Lincoln stood on a a makeshift stage out there on that field and delivered a two-minute speech. And his brevity was shocking. In fact, it wasn't appreciated at all. When he sat down, a member of the Philadelphia Press Corps leaned over and whispered to him, Is that all? And he just nodded and said, that is all. Now, the newspapers scoffed at what they considered a failed performance. The Chicago Times said that every American would be ashamed at the president's dishwater diluted words. Society at large considered it rude, insufficient. Imagine the fact that the speaker before Abraham Lincoln had spoken for more than an hour, and then Lincoln gets up for two minutes. Would he be your favorite pastor or what? Huh? Just admit it. Well, it just came to my mind. The majority of newspapers never even put Lincoln's speech on the front page. They relegated it to the back of their newspapers. His Gettysburg Address was brief. It wasn't long before the world discovered the depth of meaning. It's now considered one of the greatest speeches ever delivered. The truth is you don't need a lot of words at times 
to describe truly great events, and sometimes all you need is a name, and that says enough. Like the Vietnam Wall, you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, all you get are some names, one after another, and nothing said. Then you get to verses 33 and 34, and you get these just these brief statements that basically cover some of the greatest moments in Israel's history, and that's it. And you might wonder, is that all? Is that it? And it is. To these Hebrew Christians in the first century, all the way down to Christians in the 21st century, it's really enough, isn't it, to just provoke the heart to faith and love and perseverance and hope, and courage. Now the writer begins, verse 32, by writing, you'll you'll notice, he says, and what more shall I say? You could render that, what more do I need to say? (laughs) In other words, you got the point by now, right? Faith is the mighty act of God through the life of an available uh, believer. He then adds the statement in verse 32, for time will fail me. In other words, I don't have enough time. All of the illustrations and all of the stories, I just don't have enough time. So encouraging for me to hear another preacher say he's out of time. He writes in verse 32, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel, and the prophets. That's no surprise that he doesn't have enough time. What is surprising is the list of names he just rattled off. First of all, he doesn't rattle them off in chronological order, which is wonderful evidence, by the way, of the inspiration of Scripture through the personality of a human author. Someone editing these comments or making them up on their own would have cleaned up the list and put them in order. Barak serves before Gideon. Samson comes after Jephthah. Uh, The author just rattles them off as they come to his mind. And the Spirit of God is pleased. But the most startling thing to me as I I looked at this list and studied it it is, uh, is not the fact that the names are out of order. The startling thing about this list is who got on it. That's the surprising part. I mean, look at it again. You can understand David. You can understand Samuel. But Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, hmm. what happened to Nehemiah? What happened to Jeremiah? Or Isaiah? Or the godly king Hezekiah? Or Josiah? Or Hannah? Or Ruth? I mean, if you're going to rattle off some names, <laughs> Jephthah, Barak? Gideon. But this is God's point. These guys don't have uh, polished resumes and they don't have clean rap sheets. In fact, the first thing we've got to clear up before we get into this list of of judges, because he's going to list six men, judges, most of them, and some prophets. Let's clear up the role of a judge and maybe we'll understand these men a little better. You need to understand they didn't have a courtroom just because they're called a judge. They didn't wear a black robe, and they they didn't have a pension either. In fact, these judges were more, think 
a combination of uh, Davy Crockett and Wyatt Earp. Okay? Not a dignified Supreme Court justice. No, think Wyatt Earp. Uh, maybe minus the chewing tobacco, but think about that. The, these guys resembled Western sheriffs who faced down dangerous enemies, led the people into, into battle, enforced justice. In fact, their function, according to Judges chapter 2 and verse 16, was the God-given responsibility to deliver the people from those who were plundering them. So these men are they're, they're really fighters. They're rough and, and tumble kind of men. Many of them would, would like to shoot first and then ask you some questions later. <laughs> Now again, what surprises me is of all the judges, he begins with one that wasn't really that tough. In fact, he didn't want to volunteer. Gideon shows up there in your list. Judges chapters 6 through 8. You want to write that in your margin if you don't have a cross-reference. tells the story, and we don't have time to turn there. But he was so afraid of following God that after God called him into action, he went and hid out in the barrel they used to squeeze grapes into juice or wine. And then he was so certain that that God had chosen the wrong guy to be judged. He told God, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put a fleece out of lamb's wool. And if in the morning that fleece is all wet and all the ground around it is is dry, then then, uh, I'll know I, I got the signals correct and you want me. The next morning, Gideon wrung out a bowl full of water from that fleece, and the ground around it was dry. And so what did he do? He said, Lord, tell you what, I could have mixed that up. Uh, Let's reverse the order, shall we? The next morning, would you make the fleece dry and the ground all wet? Now, if I were God, I would have taken that fleece and strangled him and found somebody else, okay? That's exactly what God did, though, in his grace. So Gideon you know, pulls together an army of 32,000 men. And God says, too many, whittle it down to 10,000. And so he whittles it down to the crack troops. If you know the story, if you're young in the faith, which is why I'm reviewing it, God comes along later and says, still too many. Your army's too big. Take them to the river and uh, let them get a drink of water. And I want you to get rid of all those guys that drop down on all fours and put their snout in the water and just begin to drink. I want you to keep the guys that reach down on one knee and with their hand pull water up and watch for maybe an enemy attack. Keep those guys. Of the 10,000 soldiers, 9,700 of them dropped down on all fours and started drinking directly from the river. I can see Gideon running up and down the riverbank. Not that way, not that way. Use your hands. Use your hands. 300 men are left. That's all. God says that's great. 300 men. Gideon's probably looking for his fleece. The enemy of Midianites was 135,000 strong, if you go back and read the story. and They're armed to the teeth. And you got 300 Israelites. And then God comes along and gives the strategy. Take a clay pitcher and, and a lantern and blow on a trumpet. And, and then they're going to run around and kill each other. Gideon does it. You'd think he'd run away. But he doesn't. This farmer turned judge 
followed God even after all of that. Here's the lesson. If you're taking notes, Gideon demonstrated a faith in God's plan that overruled personal fear. He demonstrated a faith in God's plan that overruled personal fear. The second guy in this list in Hebrews 11 is Barak. Judges chapters 4 and 5 tell his story. He's called by God to lead the troops into battle against a warlord named Sisera. Uh, Sisera commanded the chariot army of the Canaanites, which was renowned for its ferocious abilities. Nothing, by the way, would have thrilled this guy more. In fact, God promised him ahead of time that he'd win the battle. Now, how would you like to go into battle knowing you really want to fight and you love to fight and you're ready to take these guys on and God says you're going to win? In fact, uh, he was really excited because it would exonerate his past. Many scholars believe he was hiding out in a city of refuge for murder. God's going to call him out. It's going to exonerate his past. It's going to make him famous in the land. And then God adds, oh, by the way, um, because of the wickedness of Sisera, this warlord, I'm going to turn his name into a perpetual embarrassment for all of the enemy nations out there because I'm not going to allow you to kill him. I'm going to have a woman kill him. And Barak swallowed his pride and agreed to follow God and give him all the glory, and a woman would be heralded as the victor over Sisera instead of himself, and that's exactly what happened. Reminded me as I studied of D.O. Moody who once said, it's wonderful what God will do with someone who refuses to keep the credit. Here's the point. Barak demonstrated a faith that overpowered his personal pride. All right, we've got to keep moving. Number three in the list, next in the line of Samson, Judges chapters 13 through 16, tell the full story. And every time I study Samson's life and look at him again, as I did to prepare for this message, I often think of that little children's chorus that could have saved him so much trouble, that little chorus that goes, oh, be careful, little eyes, what? What you see. Would have saved him a lot of trouble. And it would have kept him from that fatal haircut, right? Because his eyes fell on Delilah, and she coaxed out of him his secret. Now his hair did not give him power. His hair represented his commitment to his Nazarite vow. His hair did not give him power. Some of us are counting on that, by the way. With his head in Delilah's lap, she, he's sound asleep. She cuts off his hair. He realizes too late that his last defiance against God's moral law will be a tragic one. And ironically, the Philistines put out his eyes. But if you know his story, his last act will be his greatest. He called upon God for strength, and he pushed over two support columns in a Philistine temple where they had all gathered to make sport of him. That temple came crashing down, killing more Philistines along with himself than at any other time in his life. Here's the point. Samson's demonstration of faith overcomes past failure. Listen, it's good to remember that your failure is never fatal. 
get back in the race. There may be consequences, some new obstacles, but God will use you as you make your life available to Him. Now, the writer of Hebrews mentions Jephthah next. His story is recorded in Judges 11. Now, he happens to be unwanted by his nation. It's a little wonder, uh, given the fact that he was an illegitimate child of a prostitute. She didn't want him either, by the way. He literally grew up in the back alleys of eastern Syria. He's kind of a, a dirty street urchin. By the time he gets older, he's, uh, he's leading a notorious gang of undesirables. He's just trying to survive, and God, his call for a courageous judge, a hero, bypasses at this juncture in Israel's history and, and lays hands on him. You would have never thought this guy would be called. He valiantly accepted the call of God, and he led the Israelites to victory against the Ammonites. Here's the point. Jephthah's faith overturns his personal heritage. And by the way, the Hebrew Christians reading this, those uh, Gentile believers who had adopted the faith in, in this God of Abraham were probably wondering if God would only use people with a respectable family pedigree. Well, Jephthah is a visual aid that God will use anybody who is available and willing. Next in line, here in the text is David. No surprise there. I mean, we could spend the evening talking about his heroic acts of faith, couldn't we? Demonstrating faith in God over and over again. We could talk about his mistakes, his failures and sins, too. They were legendary. Every Israelite knew the story of how David risked his life to defend the reputation of God against a a giant named Goliath. Maybe the writer was thinking of that moment. That was the outset of his life. It just sort of characterized David and his future. 1 Samuel 17 tells the story of that uh, rather death-defying act of faith. I don't know about you, but I'm always intrigued by, by reading of what people are willing to do with their lives. And I'm intrigued at times to read of what people are willing to risk their lives to do. How about you? It wasn't too long ago I read some brief bios of several individuals who risked their lives by going over Niagara Falls. Now there's the ultimate life risk, right? Some of them survived. Some of them did not. Let me tell you a few of them real quickly. Annie Taylor was actually the first person documented to ever try it. It was 1901. She was a retired school teacher. She was 63 years old, but she claimed she was only 43. I could say more about that, but I'm not going to. Annie Taylor devised a, a modified pickle barrel, and on her birthday, October 24th, cushioned with pillows... And holding her cat, she went over the falls. (laughs) Fortunately, she survived. Unfortunately, her cat did too. (laughs) As they pulled her out, she actually was quoted as saying, no one ever ought to do that again. (laughs) 
1930, George Stathakis did. He got into an even heavier barrel, went over the falls with his pet turtle inside along for the ride. And when it was over, only the turtle survived. In more modern days, a guy named Jesse Sharp went over the falls in 1990. You can see his pictures online. It's rather sad. Went over in his kayak. He was an experienced, expert, confident kayaker. I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it up. He was convinced that the Niagara Falls, considered a class six rapids, could be conquered. In fact, he was so confident that he even refused to wear a helmet. Besides, he explained to all of his friends a helmet would obscure his face from the cameras he knew would be waiting for him when he arrived. He didn't. In fact, the only thing they found was his kayak. As I read these accounts, I, I find myself asking, why in the world would anybody risk their life to do that? In fact, most of the friends and relatives of these individuals reported that this was all they talked about. Some of them planned this stunt for years. This was an obsession with them. I couldn't help but think, what a tragic, trivial cause upon which to risk your own life. And then just step back for a moment, though. If you were on that hillside with the Israelite army and you saw a young shepherd boy run into that valley toward a giant named Goliath, you'd have thought the same thing. What a tragic stunt. What a waste of life. This wasn't an act, though, and there weren't any cameras, and David wasn't interested in fame. He happened to be deeply concerned about the fame of God, and he exercised faith. And every bit of skill he'd picked up as a shepherd, throwing stones from his sling. And that encounter became for the nation a galvanizing encounter. And every one of us today think about this example of faith, willing to do impossible things that do matter. Here's the point. David's demonstration of faith overwhelmed personal impossibilities. And that was just one of many. Finally, the list ends here with Samuel and the prophets. Their testimonies recorded throughout much of the Old Testament. We're not even going to begin here, for time fails us. Now, if you surveyed their lives, however, I think you could categorically define their faith as this, a faith that overlooks pressure to conform. You know, prophets were different kind of warriors, They would preach and confront not their enemies, but their families. They would speak to their own people. It probably takes as much faith, if not more, to stand up for Christ in front of your family and your co-workers and those people who know you than against enemies or strangers. For the most part, the prophets stood against their times and said, Thus saith the Lord, They knew the people to whom they preached, and they still stood and delivered the truth. Now, in the next two verses, the writer of Hebrews delivers in these short sentence fragments, really nothing less than some of the greatest moments of Israel's history. 
And I would agree, again, time would fail us. Let me structure it like this, and I'll make some brief comments. One author commented that there are nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. We think of the fruit of the Spirit. There are nine of them. Here, there are nine fruits of faith. Let me give them to you that way. The first fruit mentioned in Hebrews 11.33 is conquering kingdoms. He could have been thinking of Joshua defeating the enemies in the land, or even David later defeating the Philistines. He goes on to say they performed acts of righteousness. He could have been thinking of Daniel, who maintained a life of integrity for 75 years. The third fruit, he says, they obtained promises. Let me pause enough to say here, performing acts of righteousness is faith living biblically. Obtaining the promises is faith waiting biblically. One author put it this way, performing acts of righteousness is faith behaving. Obtaining the promises is faith believing. And I'm not really sure which one's the harder one, behaving or believing, doing or waiting. Actually, I'm pretty convinced the hardest one happens to be whatever you are experiencing at the moment. That's the hardest one. Somebody once said that your greatest step of faith is your next one whatever it might be. The fourth fruit of faith given here is a reference to shutting the mouths of lions. Now, more than likely, that's a reference to God's miraculous protection of Daniel in the lion's den. As one author reworded it a little more correctly, you could actually say it was the lions in Daniel's den. While you and I might not be thrown to a den of lions, don't overlook the fact that the devil is on the hunt. He's even now, we're told, walking around, Peter writes, like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour, literally discredit, which means he's after the Christian. So every time you trust God, every time you do the right thing, every time you respond biblically, every time you avoid the snare of temptation, you effectively shut the mouth of that old lion. The fifth fruit of faith is quenching the power of fire. Now, the quenching of fire is perhaps a reference to Daniel's three friends, right, who were thrown into the furnace, only to come out unsinged, unscathed, unharmed. But we've also been told, haven't we, that our faith is our shield, whereby we quench the fiery arrows of the evil one, those fiery darts dipped in temptation, impatience, unbelief, pain. You might not be thrown into a fiery furnace. You might not be thrown into a den of lions. But every day, keep this in mind, you re-enter your world, and whether you know it or not, you face the threat of a firefight and the cunning of an old, experienced lion who loves to track Christians down. You can't face either one without faith that believes 
and behaves. The writer of Hebrews adds a sixth fruit. Faith delivered some from the edge of the sword. 1 Samuel 18, Jeremiah 39, perhaps stories where God's servants were rescued from certain death by the sword. The seventh fruit of faith is experienced by those who, it says, from weakness were made strong. Now, one of the benefits of growing old in the faith or older in the faith is that you discover not how strong you are, you discover how what? How weak you are. Rather than growing more independent, you grow more dependent. You've understood a little bit better what Christ meant when He told His disciples, without me, you can do a few things. Let me try that again. Uh, Without me, you can do some things. Okay, say it with me. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. That kind of weakness is actually a platform upon which faith is demonstrated. The eighth fruit. Verse 34, they became mighty in war, maybe like Abraham or Joshua. The ninth fruit, they put foreign armies to flight, perhaps like Gideon or Joshua. I even thought of Jonathan. You just sit through this and you think, okay, what you know of the Old Testament, what might he be thinking of? And there are stories beyond the time to tell. Let me give you, just as a summary, four abiding observations from these rather brief memorials to the faith of the Old Testament believer. First, if you study these lives carefully, you'll discover that most demonstrations of faith come through surprised people. Yeah, they they put their lives on the line, but do you think that Gideon marched up that hill thinking, the the, the torch and the trumpet strategy, this works every time. (laughs) I love this strategy. (laughs) He's probably going, trumpet, torch, okay, Lord, oh no. I love the way God surprises His servants. Acts of faith, by the way, take place where there's no question who performs the mighty deed, and it is God. I keep thinking, oh, that God would give us as a church, as a body of believers, a believing community, reaching into our community and around the world in ways that He would give this Give us this kind of ministry that that could only be explained in terms of God's power, God's might, God's wisdom, God's leading, explainable only in the terminology of faith. Wouldn't that be great for your life and mine? Wouldn't it be great for us as a church? Things are happening that are only explainable in terms of faith in a great God. Secondly, Some demonstrations of faith come through hesitant people, fearful people. These are people in Faith 101 who are always at the bottom of the class. They never seem to get it. And then guess what? God chooses them. 
and he demonstrates his glory through these people more than those who are at the head of the class and have all the answers and seem to have everything put together. Those people tend to get skipped over. Thirdly, you'll notice that some demonstrations of faith come from inexperienced people, like Jephthah, Josiah, Esther, Ruth, wagon load of others. Fourth, you'll notice that every demonstration of faith came through, and I use the word every this time, every demonstration of faith came through imperfect people. In fact, as I went back through these men's lives that are mentioned here, it struck me Gideon failed to finish a life of faith. Barak failed to fully trust the Lord in faith. Jephthah foolishly boasted in his faith. Samson repeatedly lapsed in his faith. David failed to consistently lead in faith, and on and on and on. And and that's the point of the encouragement of of this chapter. The Hebrew believers reading this chapter are, are going to immediately identify with the names here. Why? Because they include those who were not strong. I mean, at first glance, they're going to go, wow, why'd they get in the list? And then if you study it, you go, oh, thank God they got in the list. Because maybe I can get in there too. People who weren't consistent, who weren't brave, who weren't perfect, who weren't mighty, who weren't strong, but God was. God was faithful to them. God was powerful to them and through them. God was mighty, and that at the end of the day is all that matters. Weak faith in a mighty God accomplishes great things for God. One of my favorite heroes of the faith I have used in illustrations over and over, and I was thumbing through his two-volume biography, and I've marked it all up, and I've underlined here and there. And just this week, I was looking at the first volume again. I don't believe I've told you these two illustrations of his weakness and his hesitancy and his frustration with God. So you just pack everything away, and I'm going to tell you two stories, and then we'll go eat chocolate chip cookies. Sound like a good deal? All right. Hudson Taylor. He wrote extensively to his sister, and from those letters, you learn an awful lot about his life, and those are the kind of biographies I like to read because it gives you all the details. He decided to prepare for the mission field. You remember, perhaps, I've told you that he tried to live off the smallest amount of money possible. In fact, he he tried to figure out the least amount of food he would need to eat a day to stay healthy. And then he gave the rest away, even though he was apprenticed to a medical doctor and made a good income. He found that he could live off porridge in the morning, porridge and black bread in the evening, and every so often a little meat. And then he gave the remaining money for medical supplies, and he would personally assist these poverty-stricken people because he personally moved into the slums of London to prepare himself to go to China. He had a problem, though. The medical doctor he worked for often forgot to pay Hudson his weekly salary. So Hudson had to remind him every week. 
which was frustrating to him. And so he finally decided that maybe this was a test from God. And so he made a pact with the Lord that he would no longer remind the doctor to pay him. And he asked the Lord to remind the doctor to pay him. He felt that would be a great way to develop his faith, he wrote to his sister, to simply trust the Lord to remind the doctor to pay him his salary. Having made that pact with the Lord, the doctor didn't pay him again. (laughs) You'd think, oh wait, he never missed a payment after that. No, he didn't pay him again for several weeks. God didn't seem to be reminding him. Eventually, the rent was due, and Hudson had no money to pay. His food was running out as well. Now, let me read. One Friday, near closing time at the clinic, the doctor, again, not having a clue that he owed Taylor another week's salary, suddenly turned and said, by the way, Taylor, is not your salary due? Hudson wrote, I had to swallow two or three times before I could answer, and I told him quietly that it was overdue for some time. But how thankful I felt at this moment that God had heard my prayer. The doctor replied, well, why didn't you remind me? You know how busy I am, and I've just sent all the cash to the bank. Otherwise, I would have paid you at once. Hudson headed to his little apartment, grateful that his landlady would already be asleep and would not be asking for his rent. Saturday trudged along, and just when defeated and discouraged, Hudson was about to lock the clinic up that night The doctor suddenly appeared, rather amused that one of his clients had just come by his office and done something he'd never done before. He paid him in cash. The doctor couldn't understand what would possess his wealthy client to come by his office, he'd never done it before, at 10 o'clock at night and pay a bill he could have paid any time he wanted with a check. The doctor then gave Hudson a handful of banknotes and said, I probably owe you that. I'll pay you the balance on Monday. Took him all the way to the midnight moment. Oh, what joy, he said, there was in an answered prayer of faith. On another occasion, this is the second of the two stories that precede your chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) Hudson wrote that his boss forgot to pay him again for several weeks. He headed home, discouraged and confused again with the Lord. He didn't have much money left in his pocket. When he arrived home, he was met by one of the poverty-stricken men who lived near him in the slum district. And he begged Hudson to come and see his wife, who had only recently delivered a baby, and neither the mother nor the newborn were doing very well. So Hudson reluctantly agreed. He wrote to his sister that he was not in the mood to help anybody that night. He was rather frustrated with God at the moment. When he arrived at their apartment, several children were huddled inside this bare one-room dwelling, and he described it to his sister as wretched. A woman was lying on a cot in a corner, and a newborn lay in her arms, crying. Hudson knew without any examination that the baby was not getting any milk because the woman herself was hungry. The entire family was hungry. Hudson immediately knew that the Lord wanted him to give this family all the money he had in his pocket. But his heart refused. He told the family there was nothing he could do for them. He's writing to his sister, they needed comfort, but I did too. So I shared with them that although their circumstances were very distressing, there was a loving heavenly father, but something in me cried, you hypocrite, 
telling these unconverted people about a loving Heavenly Father and not prepared to trust Him yourself. And he said, I was nearly choked on the words. But he resisted still with stubbornness and frustration. The obvious desire of God's Spirit for him to completely trust the Lord and give the rest of his money away to this family, and he still continued to refuse. Before they left, the man asked if Hudson would pray. Hudson agreed, although he said he didn't want to, to himself. They all knelt down in that little apartment, and the battle raged in Taylor's heart as he prayed for this family and their needs Without any desire, without any joy, they ended the prayer and he got up and he reached into his pocket and he gave the man all his money. Only then, he would write to his sister, did the joy of the Lord flood my heart. Only after. He said, I knew this poor woman's life would be saved. When he returned home, he ate his porridge. Before he got into bed, he got on his knees and thanked the Lord that he had been empowered to give everything he had away and then reminded the Lord that he was now out of money and food. (laughs) You ever had those kind of reminder prayers, huh? The next day, nothing to eat. Late in the day, an anonymous package without a return address or name The package contained a pair of winter gloves, and inside one of the gloves was four times the amount of money he had given away the night before. (laughs) I mean, how many of us would love to experience that kind of answer? I mean, that's great, Lord, sign me up. Wait, that only comes after running out of money and food. I mean, how many of us would be willing to trust God for our income? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're there right now. How many of us would be willing to wait on the Lord to remind someone to give us what we needed? How many of us would be willing to give away what little we had, even our last dollar, to somebody else in need? See, we love, don't we, the answers of God to acts of faith. We just don't want to go through the agony of living by faith. I'm so glad, though, that Hudson Taylor struggled, as did Samuel and David and Gideon and every single believer who's honest enough to admit it. Hudson Taylor said in later years, I used to ask God to help me. And then I asked him if I might help him. But now I've reached the point where I ask him simply to do his work, his way, through me. I simply cooperate, and he does all the rest. You see, when that takes place, when we cooperate, faith takes place. Because our personal weakness does not prohibit our personal acceptance, our cooperation with a personal assignment given to us by God. What is it you're waiting on for God to fulfill? What is it right now that you're waiting on God to provide an answer for? 
that only God can do. And you are praying with Peter, Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith. Not Lord, increase my strength, my might, my power, my confidence. Just faith in your might, in your power, in your ability. And when we do that, Faith will be demonstrated by our weakness and through our weakness as we personally accept, with hesitation maybe, with uncertainty, with a sense of surprise that God did something. But we personally accept, nonetheless, a personal assignment from our faithful Lord where He has us right now. And we behave and we believe. That's faith. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the men, the lives, the events chosen to grace just three brief verses and how they resonate with our heart. Thank you. Thank you for the way you choose people. Thank you for the way you use people. Thank you for the way that you love and demonstrate grace toward people. Help us to be a little more like you. And in the meantime, to trust you enough to behave biblically and believe biblically. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.